So we've had tenants invest in buildings, whether we're buying a building from a third party owner and there's a tenant in the building and we're going through a tenant interview and they ask us, could they be part of it? And we say, sure. So yeah, we've, we've done that many times. We do that a lot on sale leasebacks. When you're buying from a physician group, sometimes there's younger physicians who never had the opportunity to invest in the deal before. They're going to be there for many years. They will co-invest with us. You know, on the development side, I think that's a good opportunity too, because a lot of these physicians look at it as if they're paying rent, they're going to be there a long time. And I'm sure you see this too. They may as well get a return on a deal that they control without having to be on the debt, without having to have any capital liability for a roof or and not having to manage anything and the headache. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast, where I interview Brian Howard, founder and president of Stage Equity Partners, a real estate investment company headquartered in Chicago, but invests in medical office buildings and healthcare real estate nationally. We learn about the background of his company and how it is able to respond to market conditions. And we learn a little bit about Brian as well. So I hope you enjoy this interview. So Brian, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. Nice to see you, Trish. So Brian, I start with getting a background on your company. So tell me how Stage Equity Partners started and and the story behind it. Sure. So I was a lawyer here in Chicago for a number of years and saw all my clients out and about doing deals and creating value and was jealous of of that lifestyle. So I had to break into, I was a real estate lawyer. I had to break into real estate, happened to end up working for someone who was a real estate developer here in town and learned the business. And then in April of 2009, right when the economy was teeter-tottering, decided to start our business as a one-man band. And healthcare was in its infancy in 2009. So I remember going to a conference and they had industrial real estate panel, and they had a retail panel, and then they had a department panel, and then they had another. And I was on this other panel with like a marina person, a parking garage person, and, and, and me as the healthcare person. And it was strange for everyone because our rents were so high. We're dealing with physicians and the build-outs were extravagant. And for me, it just I fell into it and bought my first building in 2010 and haven't looked back since. So had you previously worked and done any deals in the medical office space before being on that panel? As your Yeah, I worked for a developer who did medical office deals. And by the time I was on the panel, I had closed my first deal. By the time I closed my second deal in 2010, it happened to be with Chris Bodner and Lee Asher, who were just starting their business. And I had just started mine. And BOMA was 600 people. And they needed someone 
on a panel at BOMA that did deals like what I, what I consider the middle market. So sub institutional deals. So <laughs> we, I just bought a small deal in Atlanta from them and they said, Brian, come talk about that deal. So lo and behold, I had closed one or two deals and I'm on a panel with all these REITs and me. And I'm like, one of us doesn't look like the other ended up meeting someone from healthcare realty trust and ended up buying because of that bought two buildings later that year from healthcare realty trust. And that's how really all things just got started. I wish I would tell you there was a more strategic <laughs> venture. Yeah. It just yeah. sort of happened. It just, and then healthcare, as you know, has evolved in such a different way from where we are, I guess, 11 or 12, gosh, 13 years ago. Yeah. And, and what kept you in the healthcare real estate asset class? And, and do you do other? Yeah, I just, groups? I liked having a knowledge and be looked at as an expert in a particular field. So I saw people looking at, and they were agnostic on asset classes, whether they were buying hotels or apartments. And for me, I thought the way to differentiate myself and my business was learn everything I could know about this one particular field. So spent a lot of time with doctors and physicians and healthcare administrators and just learn kind of on the back end on the operations side. And then my thought was hopefully that I could then understand how to underwrite and due diligence good medical office deals. So I, I've stuck to the knitting, though, increasingly, as we sit here today on June 2nd, 2021, healthcare has been very competitive on the buy side. So we've actually pivoted a little, and we can get into that later, but we're starting to, to, to create value, doing new development, starting to look a little bit at maybe some other asset classes, just because the yields right now are not commensurate with the purchase price and the risk. So yeah. you got to evolve a little bit with the times. Yeah, it's tough buyer's market out there right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're headquartered in Chicago, but you said, you know, you already mentioned you did a purchase in Atlanta. So where do you kind of concentrate your efforts nationally? So we're based in Chicago and I would love to do deals within an hour drive of my house, but there's only so many deals in Chicago. There's only, and there's a lot of equity here in town that has really deep pockets. So started looking probably about 10 years ago out of state. And one of my longtime investors made a point to me that said, you know, I think it would be helpful for you and your business if you would concentrate in certain areas of the country and have a little bit of thought. Because at the time I was kind of looking everywhere. So I started thinking about where are people retiring? Where are fast growing states? What currently has an aging population? And then would layer those metrics on top of one another. And, you know, there's no secret sauce. I mean, it's, it's Florida, it's, it's a lot of the Southern states, Texas, Carolinas. And so started looking at those markets. And then about five or six years ago, we maybe longer, we took over property management. We were outsourcing it and we took it all in house. And that really solidified that it's, it's to your benefit to have multiple buildings in one given market for scale and efficiencies and cost sharing. So any new market we go into now, I kind of look to say, is this a market that we can aggregate more than one building? Because if it's not, you know, there's a big learning curve and you're going to end up spending a lot of time without maybe as much reward as if you had three, four buildings in, in a certain market. So if you're going into a new market with one purchase, you try to look at getting several buildings under contract. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be immediate, but right. you know, you make a big investment in time and you learn, you you find contractors and vendors and brokers and you know, you educate your your lender on that market and 
you get to know the physicians, the hospitals. And if you could do two, three, four, ultimately the, you know, the, the, the big win is a portfolio exit down the road. Right. Right. So that is what gives you the premium. So unless it's a, if it's a single tenant net lease deal with a long-term lease, maybe then I'm a little bit more, well, if it's just one deal in one market, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it. But if it's a multi-tenant deal where you really have to invest the time and the knowledge, I absolutely want to do more than one deal in that market. So what's a good opportunity for stage equity partners? It, well, it's changed, Trisha. It used to be anything under, used to be $20 million. This is before the non-trader reached for a lot of the private equity. I'm talking right at the beginning. Anything under $20 million was too small for the REITs. Right. Who are the dominant players in our industry. And that changed. Then about a little while ago, it used to be $10 million. So I could comfortably play in that space without competing against folks whose cost of capital was a lot less expensive than mine. So it's a long answer to say, you know, it's changed. I mean, I used to pr- pretend that I would be under the radar of the REITs. Now we're largely bidding on the same deals and we're bidding on deals against a lot of folks that used to not look at these types of deals. And now it's become much more crowded. So I would tell you the, the perfect deal for us is anywhere from 10 to $20 million dollars largely stabilized, maybe a little bit of value add, meaning maybe there's some role coming due. Maybe there's a little vacancy. There's a way for us to boost the NOI a little bit, create a little bit of a premium, and then ultimately buy a few more deals in that market and then package it up down the road. I don't have a fund. Every deal is is a separate standalone investment. So there's no mandate. We don't have to sell anything. But you know, to get a nice return, you have to exit when you have enough term and value left for the next buyer. So at some point you have to sell. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're able to be flexible enough to buy and sell in the market that you are in. And you're not forced to sell when it's not advantageous for you and your investors. Right. But on the flip side, we've owned buildings where we sold after a year or two. So things happen or things fall in your lap and you say, okay, now would be a really good time to exit. Right. So yeah, I think there's pluses and minuses on every capital source that you that you go with. But for us, what's worked is just the flexibility and being nimble and being entrepreneurial and figuring out. I mean, we've owned one building since 2013, and we've refinanced it twice, and we may own it for another 10 years. So it all depends. So when you purchase, and now as you, you're looking maybe to develop some properties, is offering the physicians any ownership? something Mm -hmm. that you consider? Yeah, I've done that for a long time. So we've had tenants invest in buildings, whether we're buying a building from a third-party owner and there's a tenant in the building and we're going through a tenant interview and they ask us, could they be part of it? And we say, sure. So yeah, we've, we've done that many times. We do that a lot on sale leasebacks. When you're buying from a physician group, sometimes there's younger physicians who never had the opportunity to invest in the deal before. They're going to be there for many years, they will co-invest with us. You know, on the development side, I think that's a good opportunity too, because a lot of these physicians look at it as if they're paying rent, they're going to be there a long time. And I'm sure you see this too. They may as well get a return on a deal that they control without having to be on the debt, without having to have any capital liability for a roof or and not having to manage anything and the headache. So I think that will absolutely be a part of it. I look at all these tenants as my partners in the deal anyway. So whether they're my tenant or whether they're my partner in the equity side, I'm comfortable with that. 
Well, I think it offers them a passive investment because unless a, a physician has a real estate company, they're going to own real estate unless they have a real estate company to manage that day to day. I see it all the time where they come to me and they're just so exhausted because they've been doing two jobs, both very hectic, both very demanding, both having to make a lot of decisions. And, you know, I can say, hey, you know, there's people out there that can help you. And if you, to me, I feel like if you share a lot, you know, if you share in several pies rather than try to keep one pie to yourself, I think it just makes life a little bit easier. Yeah, I agree. I, I think we see a lot of sell lease specs because a lot of times these physicians, you said the word exhausting, it's hard, you know, especially all of a sudden an HVAC unit goes out in the middle of the workday and they got to deal with that. Or sometimes you have physicians, maybe the partnerships aren't quite working out the way they would have hoped. And you have, or you have physicians that own the building and have retired. And then the new physicians are paying rent to physicians who are no longer part of the practice. And that sometimes becomes a little bit of a conflict. So I think a lot of times it works. And a lot of times it's a good idea for these physicians to do this, but then they realize there's benefits to selling to a group like mine or others that they wake up every day. This is what we do. We don't practice medicine. We don't deal with patients. We just want to make sure the buildings are run well and there's no hiccups. Yeah. And it avoids a lot of, when they do try to sell it, you know, it avoids a lot of, there's sometimes a lot to do to get it to be investment ready. Oh, (laughs) we wake up and don't think about how many deals we could do a day. (laughs) I look at these deals and I say, how can we take this deal and package in such a way that it provides a really steady cash flow without any surprises for the next X years? And we look at these deals and I would hope that by the time we sell it, my buyer has a clean bill of health on the deal Mm -hmm. that a lot of the stuff is taken care of, that a lot of the headaches are already removed. But I think a lot of times when we look at deals, I'm surprised by how often a lot of things are not addressed as they Mm -hmm. should be. Yeah. The physical plant stuff, you know, is, is a lot, you know, it can get expensive if it's deferred for too long. Oh, for sure. And even just, we bought a building last year and they, they had a second access point on a neighbor's property to this. And it, it was a pretty important accident. They never got an easement ever, ever. So I was like, how did that even happen? And the lender, their lender missed it. So we had to get, we had to knock on the neighbor's door and say, this has been going on for 20 years. We need to document this. And the response at first was, why? We why? don't have to do anything. Why should we do that? And then and I'm like, well, we're going to be, we're neighbors and we're going to be good neighbors. And down the road, I'm sure you're going to want something from us down the road. We're all kind of here together. I yeah. think it just serves us both. So. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I come across a, f- a fair amount of time. Well, is there an interesting transaction story you can share with the audience? You know, one that's memorable, interesting, or turned out differently than you expected it? You want a good one or a bad one? Whatever you want to share. Let's go with the good. <laughs> we bought a surgery center and had a 10-year lease, and we owned it for seven years. And a couple years ago, they knocked on the door and said, we need to improve the lobby. We need to upgrade this. We need to upgrade that. And then our light bulb goes off and we say, what's that going to run? And they say about $250,000. And we had some, some funds with our bank that were available. So you know, we said, hey, let us pay for that. And if you're not planning on going anywhere in exchange, tack on some extra years on your lease, that will then help us with our loan. And they did, and we did, and they were thrilled that they didn't have to spend the money. We were thrilled because we got extra years in the back end. And then we sold, we weren't planning on selling that, but with the extra term, we were able to sell it 
within six months of that transaction. So that was actually, sometimes those things, I would tell you we were strategic. I think that fell in our lap. Another story, maybe not quite as positive, but it was okay, is we had a a building in Florida. It was a big building, 60,000 square feet. And we had a hospital who took 40,000 out of the 60,000 square feet. And this hospital bought and bought more and more physician groups. And this one physician group owned by the hospital in our building lost a bunch of doctors. And the hospital decided to close this location and move the remaining doctors to another building that they owned. So, you know, when people tell you sticky tenants and no default, and I mean, filling 40,000 square feet on an off-campus MOB, you know, and they, they, they paid rent, but it was dark. Right. So then the other tenants in this building who are getting fed referrals are like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we looked at, luckily this was on a, a retail thoroughfare. So we looked at transitioning to retail. We talked to different brokers. We met with the hospital a number of times. And thankfully, our lender was helpful and accommodating. And we ended up selling the building to a local developer who had a relationship with a retail tenant and slid in a retail tenant. And we, we got out and had an okay deal. But those things happen. Those things happen. I mean, if you're in this business long enough, I mean, there's a lot worse things that happen. Right. So, Yeah. You said you, you know, you guys have property management as well. So how did uh, Stage Equity Partners respond to its tenant, you know, on the onset of COVID and where are you now? Yeah. So that was a really difficult time in March and April of 2020. Probably the single most difficult operational time I've had in in 13 years of the business because when 09 and 2010 and 07, even before that, it was an economic crisis. So doctors still chugged along, you know, people still want to see their physician. They still, if they had insurance or government, they, they still were able to see their doctor. So healthcare back then, even during the economic crisis, still was able to maintain its, its viability. This was a healthcare crisis. Right. For the first time ever, doctors couldn't work, couldn't show up to work. And nobody had ever dealt with this. So we had physicians calling. We had physicians who were partners in deals calling. We had hospitals calling. And the nice thing about our business is we're friendly competitors. So I called and checked in with my some of the REITs and some of the pri- other private equity firms said, how are you? What are you hearing? What are you looking for? What? And we kind of all chatted. And it was helpful for me because by and large, most of these folks we're calling out of concern and it, you know, you worry that someone just calls up just as a, use it as a sword to get a rent break or a rent reduction, but by and large, it was all in good faith. And we worked with all these tenants and we wanted to make sure they got their PPP loan or how were they, were they doing telemedicine and what steps were they taking proactively on their end and not just trying to be opportunistic, which is hard for anybody to work through. But we worked with everybody. We ended up, deferring a lot of rents through 2021, part of end of 2020, part of 21, not necessarily abating, but just saying, look, pay us later on. And we got through it. They got through it. And everybody has either ramped back up or sometimes even exceeded where they they were, especially the ones that had pent up demand for people who couldn't go in there over the last during COVID and now have rescheduled all their procedures. 
And how has that changed your approach to pursuing opportunities? Has it affected some of your underwriting? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, I would say it's us and the lenders because before, you know, we do do a deal, a lend, a tenant's financials were part of due diligence and they would want to see them. So right now, even a lot of lenders won't, won't even issue a term sheet without financials. Even if they've been in a location for many years and have a long-term practice, it's just the heightened scrutiny of tenant financials and rent coverage and balance sheets and retained earnings is really heightened. Mm-hmm. A lot more scrutiny than... Pro- which is a probably a good thing. I mean, it really is a good thing. So I think that has changed forever in our industry. I think a lot of the private equity-backed tenants with maybe not quite the balance sheets as some of the privately held tenants got exposed. We lost a tenant that I was a small surgery center that was had grown way too fast and was over leveraged and couldn't sustain three months of being shut down and tossed us the keys along with like 10 other locations. So we had one, one casualty in COVID on a tenant, inevitable. I think those are the type of things that now you remember and you know hopefully you can guard against if you can. And where are you focusing your roadmap for the next three to five years? You said you might even be exploring other asset classes, but you know, with healthcare, real estate, and, and just in general. Yeah, I think so. We, we're starting to do some development and create value. So we brought on some new folks who have more experience, frankly, than I, I have a little, but not day in and day out, who really have relationships and experience. And I think when you're in the trenches, like like my company, and you are managing your own stuff, and you are in the nitty gritty, being involved in the front end on construction and development is a natural evolution. So I think that's exciting for us to do. And we'll st- probably start here locally in town because it's a little bit easier to, yeah. with relationships and to physically see stuff. But I think over time, that'll evolve. Other asset classes, I mean, through the years, I've looked at senior housing, I've looked at lab, I've looked at Lots of ancillary, and I always fall back into medical office because what I feel comfortable with. But you know, I have my eye out on other types of investments. If you know the cap rate on on, on similar better credit on a non healthcare deal is more attractive, and the risk adjusted return is stronger, I'll look at it. So yeah. I'm starting to look at other assets to see can we get a better yield with a lower risk, and that's what it all boils down to. Right now, it's just the hottest I've ever seen the healthcare market. Yeah. And I think, you know, some biotech and labs and stuff like that, they're going to come out of this because of the pandemic to try to prevent another one and have more research and stay ahead of the curve, maybe. Agreed. It's just, that's such a, you know, people ask about lab and biotech. I mean, the build out is so expensive. I mean, there's, there's some institutional knowledge you need to have in that space before you dive in, which I do not have. So yeah. I would walk before I personally, I would walk before I ran and something like that. So just in general, what's your opinion of the outlook for healthcare real estate looking forward? It's the same as it was 10 years ago. I think our population, people said this when Obama became president, what's going to happen with Obamacare? And then when Trump yeah. became president, it peeled back and, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, what I see is our population getting older and the older you get in turn, the more medical services you need. Telemedicine, I think, is here to stay, but I think it's supportive rather than replacing everything. I think healthcare has shown it's very durable asset class and it's attracted endowments and institutions and a lot of foreign capital into the space. So I, I think I would feel really, really good about owning a medical office building in a good market with a good tenant for a long time. I think for your business, I think you're in a great spot 
for my business, probably a good time on the sales side as a, <laughs> as, a as a smaller boutique buyer. Yeah. But on the on the on the buy side, it's definitely more challenging. But you know, I've seen it come and go. I mean, I'm here for the long game. I'm not. There's no race. There's no arms race here. So yes, the cycle changes. <laughs> it it has. It always it's, does. It always does. And you know what's what's the flavor of the month this month could be different down the road. So yeah, I, I. But to answer your question, I think for all interested parties, for the brokers, for the vendors, for the buyers, for the lenders, it's certainly a good spot to be in. So we move now to the Q&A part of the interview to get to know you a little bit. So what was your first job? I was a dishwasher when I was 14 years old in Detroit, Michigan. For a, uh, have you ever heard of a Coney Island? Do you know what that is? It's oh, like the, a diner. Okay. In Detroit, we just have these diners and they're called Coney Islands. And the Coney Island in Detroit is a hot dog with chili on it and mustard and onions. So I worked as a dishwasher when I was 14, summer after my freshman year maybe it was 15 as a dishwasher in this Coney Island for a summer. Yeah, no, I think that's was a great. glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all those first jobs, they, they teach you a lot of things, but I think one of the things is, you know, if you're like, well, this may be not what I want to do the rest of my life. Maybe I need to make some different decisions. So I think, yeah. you know, that's what, you know, and to be someplace on time and that, you know, people depend on you obviously, but you know, I think it helps you be like, Hmm, maybe I'll work harder at, school. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, my, I have a, I have a son who's 16 and he has his first job this summer. And there's something to be said about someone other than your parents telling you what to do all day long. So I think it's a, only a good thing. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So what would you be doing for a living if you were not working in the healthcare real estate industry? I would probably be a dentist. Oh. I don't know. I've always thought that I would be a good dentist. And I like the lifestyle and I feel like I would be an entrepreneurial dentist and have a bunch of locations. And I think there's a social aspect that I enjoy and there's a slightly medical, not slightly, but there's a for sure medical aspect that I would enjoy. So I would have probably gone to, I would have been a dentist. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I don't know if that's the answer you were hoping. <laughs> there, no, these are, no, they're not, I don't, they're your answers. Yeah. No, I love them. All right. Yeah. What are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? I just read the Phil Knight book, Shoe Dog, where he started Nike, which was super inspirational because there weren't running shoes back in the 60s. They had like Converse All-Stars and he invented like this, this waffle part under part of the, the shoe that provided cushioning and he created it from nothing and got it made abroad. I thought that was super cool. So that's been really exciting. And then I, I read the book of the former CEO of Disney. Because I always found Disney such a fascinating place. I love details. I love yeah. details. And I think Disney does details better than any other company out there. And so those were two really cool books that I just read. Fun. Fun. Yeah, I'm looking for some summer reading. So that's good. I would recommend both. Very inspirational. Nice. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Meditate. Oh, great. That's new. Last couple of years. For yeah. five or ten minutes. And it's uh, it's not... I'm not chanting in a room quietly. I, there's apps that you listen to like their guided meditations. So they tell you sort of how to do it and kind of paint by numbers. And it's, I feel like I sleep better at night, a little bit less reactive, mm-hmm. hopefully more present, hopefully. Yeah. Well, when you're a busy entrepreneur and a parent and all of those other things tugging at you, that's sometimes you just need to sit with yourself. <laughs> I, it's new. It's pretty new to me. and. 
I tried to get my son to do it and he was like a minute and he's like, I can't do it. So maybe not for everyone. For me, it, it works. But you know what? He'll probably start doing it and just not tell you. So I did the same thing. I have two children and, you know, as they're getting older and their emotions are taking over them, I was like, you know what? I think we need to do some meditation. And I would take them, you know, I, I did bring them through like some different things and they were like, no, this, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, cause you want me to more than anything else. But then, then my son asked me for the calm app. He wanted it yep. on his phone. Yep. And so I'm like, okay, you know, and then I'm just, I'll let him, let him get there however he wants to do it. <laughs> that's even better because you, you're not forcing it. It just happens. Right. Yeah. That's great. I, I would hope that happens with him, my son, but I have no idea. He won't tell you. And then maybe in his twenties, he'll be like, Oh, you know what? I just had a great right. meditation right. this morning. Right. Yet. Right. Right. My <laughs> listening is way better now. <laughs> um, so do you think leaders are born or trained? Born. I think that's a hard skill. I battle leading our company and I think you're born with it. I don't know. I'm curious to know what other folks have said to this answer, but I, I think born. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot, there's an instinct to want to lead or just take charge. I think there's some, some instinct into that. I think it's been some of the common themes, but the ongoing, I mean, you constantly have to learn different skills for different situations. And it's a constant learning to continue to be a leader and to continue to be a good leader. And then as companies grow, you know, you have to lead different people, different ways or different teams or different, you know, I mean, you're always adapting. I agree. I think the learning pieces, I guess you're right. Like a learn someone who is a leader today, 20 years from now, the world's gonna be a lot different. Mm-hmm. Maybe that style or doesn't quite work. I think, I mean, probably when our parents were, I mean, there was a lot of command and control and mm-hmm. leadership, which, you know, I think right now just different. Well, the big article today in Crane Chicago, which is our, was about how CEOs are adapting to work at home. And big article said the CEOs want people in the office because they're largely control. It's a level of control. So, I mean, that's our real time. One of the things that I see people battling with how to, how to respond to that. There's not a right or good, or good answer right now. So it's, it's still, yeah. still so fragile to coming out of the pandemic. I think giving people some leeway now, I don't think is a bad thing. No, and we'll have, there'll be conferences and people saying, this is how we, you know, brought our people back to work. Here's some things mm-hmm. we tried, but, you know, we're right in the middle of it. People are trying those things right now. So it'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Well, Brian, thank you. This has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Trisha. Thank you so much for having me. You do a great job with this. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.